Welcome, neighbor, to Folk University's Folk You radio show. I'd like to take a moment today to recognize and express my gratitude for the land and elements of this place I call home, and to acknowledge that the Cortez Community Radio Station sits on unceded territory of the Slyaman, Hamalco, and Clahoose peoples. It's getting cold. The dark days of winter are approaching, and many of us are thinking very seriously about how to keep ourselves and our families warm this winter. Corey Dow, who many of you may remember from our Dawn Chorus Twitcher Folk University, which feels like it was a long time ago, but was just in the spring, um, is back. And she is back to discuss that fundamentally winter thing of firewood. How to begin if you are new to heating with firewood, new ideas and resources if you are a little more seasoned. Welcome, Corey. Thank you so much for being here. I thought you might start by telling us a little bit more about your personal background and when you first started heating with firewood. Okay, yes, heating with firewood. Um, I moved to Cortez Island in 2008, and I guess that's when I really committed to the firewood way. Uh, I was a student at the Linnea Garden Program, and and we had a a great wood furnace down in the basement of the farmhouse at Linnea, and we took turns splitting wood and stoking the fire and trying to keep ourselves from getting pneumonia. Um, And since then, in all the years that I've lived here, um, I've always had a wood stove in the house that I've been living in, so it has been an annual event for the last... 12 going on 13 years. And can you tell me a little bit about like who you are and what what you did before you came to to Cortez? Um, well, I, I guess in the context of, of this program, um, I have been involved with the community forest on Cortez um, since 2014. And I started working with them as an employee to do the the first community consultation to establish the um, the vision and and goals of the of the community forest partnership, and then kept on working with them in various different ways as a CCFC member and president, and and now as the um, co coordinator of the community forest community firewood day, which we've been doing for the last couple of years. Okay, so you you mentioned the Firewood Day. Uh, I believe you just had your third one. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So can you tell me a little bit more about what this event is all about? Why? Why, why you got involved with this event? Absolutely. Um, firewood was initially a major concern for the island when the community forest first got its tenure here. And uh, it, hasn't, it hasn't eased up, of course, because we're all still heating our... F- our houses with wood, or a great number of us are anyways. Um, so it's also something that's very hard to deal with because under the community forest tenure, uh, the community forest partnership can't sell firewood. It's, not, it's a non-timber forest product that they're not licensed to sell. So they can sell logs, um, 
and they can open up an area for personal use firewood harvesting after operations have been completed in an area. But they can't actually just chop up the firewood and sell firewood. Um, so in the first couple years of operation, uh, the approach was to sell logs to local firewood contractors who could then do all the processing of it and get it out to customers who were interested. Um, that yielded um, almost a negative margin for the, the partnership. You know, the, the cost of, of getting the logs to where the firewood contractors would pick them up or to have them delivered to them um, was exceeding the value that they could actually charge for them. Um, so that, that didn't seem that great. There wasn't that much. It was a bit complicated. And people were saying, well, not everyone has, you know, $250, which it was at the time, uh, to invest in firewood and, and the community fire, the community forest is sure, so should serve the entire community. So what are you guys going to do about this? Um, and finally, after one AGM, I, I had a brainstorm with one of the uh, CCFC members and we thought, well, we have to be practical. We, we aren't going to go into the forest and start cutting down trees for firewood in the community forest. We can't manage it in that way. It's not economic. It's not ecological. Um, but there are always trees that are not wanted when the sale is done. And there's always surplus trees. So how can we get some of that out to the community um, in a way that recognizes all different income levels, all different abilities, all different familiarity with chainsaw usage? Uh, and we came up with the community firewood day. Um, and the basic premise of that is after any tree cutting that happens in the community forest, whatever surplus, um, is then bucked up by volunteers. And then we ask for volunteers to come and, and load it in their trucks and distribute it widely to the community, to people who are in need. Um, and it's very much a token, like a, a little gift of firewood, uh, and especially focusing on people who are elderly or are physically having a hard time doing firewood or can't do it for some other reason, like single parents with little kids, that sort of thing. So anyone who feels eligible just submits their name and then we make a big list and try to get wood to everyone. And each year we thought, oh no, there's so many names. I don't know if we're going to be able to deliver here. So we've done a lottery. Um, but at the end of the day, people have been so enthusiastic, the volunteers who come out and do this, that, um, you know, people have come with their chainsaws and bucked a little bit more wood. And people have said, I'll stay and do a couple more loads. My neighbor needs some. I know someone over here who needs some. And so as long as there's wood by the road, then people have delivered and everyone who's ever put their name on the list has gotten some. So that's been very satisfying. So can you tell us a little bit more about um, about the stories that you see, about the nature of the need that you have found on the island? Absolutely. And, and that kind of ties into what happens at the end of each community firewood day. <laughs> um, and, and also just stories that we share with each other as people who live on Cortez and heat with wood. Um, but especially right after the community firewood day, there, we always get feedback, of course. People have got comments and lots of appreciation, which is really wonderful and heartwarming. Um, but some of the comments that we've gotten repeatedly have been, um, you know, someone said, would say, um, I need wood for this winter. You know, they apply and they're like, I need wood right now. Can I apply for some community forest firewood? Um, and 
that poses a, a major question in my mind because the trees that are being delivered have only been cut down within the last month. They were standing, living, you know, <laughs> metabolizing trees, and they have only just recently been cut down. Um, and they're bucked, but they're not split, and they're not at all dry. Um, so it, this sort of made me wonder, it's like, what is people's understanding about how firewood works? And you would hear that over and over again and and try to explain to folks, well, you know, this will be great wood for next winter if you can store it in a good way. Um, then it will be a little something to, to fuel your stove in the following season. Um, other things that people would ask would or, or say would be, I, I only want fur. You know, thanks a lot for this wood, but I got a lot of hemlock and really all I wanted was fur. <laughs> <laughs> which which is um it's understandable from some angles and maybe we can go into that a little bit more um about how the species of firewood work and um and what's good for what and when and one other thing is that people would say you know gosh you know I've only got a small amount of wood here is that all there is <laughs> and fair enough it's just a little bit of wood it's just one pickup truck load and maybe a big pickup truck came to your house or maybe a little one um, but it really does indicate that we're working with a resource that's somewhat scarce for various reasons and maybe we could talk about that too a little okay so we've got a lot of things to talk about uh today and and so many more because i have uh endless questions and um things that and you know and a few things that i've learned all the hard way <laughs> in my time on Cortez. Um, and, you know, I just tend to learn the hard way. So someone comes to the island. They're just, they're new here. They're green, <laughs> like that firewood that was just cut down. And, and they come to you and they have the sense to ask for your advice. What, um, what would be the thing, the one thing you would tell a person to start with? Mm. Well, if it weren't COVID times, first I'd give them a huge high five for recognizing that there is a lot to know about firewood. And I think me, like you, most of us have learned the hard way and had a lot of frustrating days in front of our wood stove with smoke backing up into our house and fires not getting started or going out shortly after we started them. Um, so I would really really applaud the wisdom of that person in seeking out information about how to work with firewood. Um, it's a lot like starting a garden, I think, in that, uh, you know, when you, you've got your stove, it's getting chilly, you're ready to be warm, you're like, what I need is some wood. When you decide you're going to make a garden, you think, what I really need is some seeds. I'm going to look at this beautiful catalog and get me some seeds. Um, and then shortly after you've planted your seeds, you discovered that what you really needed was a fence because the deer have come and devoured your seedlings. And also you needed some water, you know? <laughs> and so with firewood, I would say that the first thing to consider is storage. You know, if um, you're gonna need space and you're gonna need covered space, and that can either come in the form of a permanent structure or you can make temporary firewood piles as long as you can cover them up. Um, it's really vital for people to, think ahead like where am I going to put my firewood often folks need maybe let's just throw it a, a generalization and say folks often need three cords of wood per winter now a cord of firewood generally measures about four feet wide by four feet tall by eight feet long um, 
So you need like a four by eight by four space there um, to get one cord of firewood. And, and it's also good to have a little bit more space so that you can stash a bit of surplus or in case you should be so lucky as to come into some wood that you'd have to have a spot to put it. So, so you need yourself a little wood yard of some sort. And, um, it's usually recommended that you store your wood a bit away from your house, uh, for uh, fire prevention purposes. And then you're going to also want a smaller space close to your house where you can move your wood to for daily use when, when you're in the wood heating season. So those things are really, really important to just scope out like, okay, where am I going to put my stacks and where am I going to stash my wood near to my house? And, um, and then once you're in your house, it's nice to have a little area where you can put a little bit of firewood close to your wood stove. Um, it's nice to put wood that's just a bit damp close to your wood stove before you burn it. Uh, and it's a good idea not to store too much firewood, especially if it's wet in your house, because it can really release a lot of moisture and create mold problems in your house. So those are some things to think about. And already our poor person who came and asked for advice, their head is spinning. <laughs> but step one is look, look for storage and think of how you're going to cover it up. You can build a roof or lots of people will just use um, old metal sheet roofing to cover a pile. Um, it's nice if your piles can be covered on the top, but open on the side so that they get lots of ventilation and, uh, and solar, solar exposure. That's another really important thing to think about when you're going to choose where to put your wood pile. I think a lot of times people want to put their wood pile out behind their garage in a dank, dark, forested area, potentially. Um, but you can imagine how much longer it will take for your wood to dry if that's where you're storing it. Much better to have your wood pile in an open, sunny spot if you can, if you can bear to sacrifice that ground space for the purpose of firewood storage, your winter wood heating is going to be so much better. And you have a lot of options and, and it will take a lot less time for your wood to dry. I, I'm just laughing here so hard. Well, one, because if only I'd talked to Corey when I had first moved Oh, I here. wouldn't have known it then. I was busy <laughs> struggling along learning these things too. <laughs> but also... Um, at the idea of having sunshine that I would give to my firewood. So um, <laughs> I, I'm still busy trying to to cut down trees for sunshine for my garden. Um, don't hate me. Uh, but, okay, so one of the things that happened to me when we mm -hmm. got here is that we had a big storage shed full of wood. And so I was like, oh, this is great. We're going to be fine. And I burnt wood all one year and kind of sussed up, okay, this is about how much I need. And then the next year, my mother uh, came to live with me in a, in a separate house. And, and she was burning wood. Uh, and, and my brother was living in his RV with me, and he was burning wood. So we, we didn't triple, but we fully doubled our use in, in one year. And voila, what happened? The thing that happens to everyone, I think, at some point, I ran out of wood. Mm -hmm. And you know, everyone's burning wood, no one's chopping wood. <laughs> everyone's burning wood. And part of the problem was when I finally got the, like, when I finally started doing the calculations at that time, I realized I needed to be storing a whole winter's worth of wood a year before, right? Gotcha. So I needed. I figured, like, to be really, really safe, six to eight cords at any one time that I was rotating through. And I didn't have room. Mm. Um, and and 
with all the millions of things that I had to build and do, I was like, I, I can't see that I'm going to build a new woodshed. And so I started looking around at the people who seemed less dumb than I am. Um, more experienced. More, exper- more, more seasoned. More seasoned. <laughs> they burn so nice. Um, and one of the things that I got really inspired about was that I saw really good <laughs> Cortesians who stacked their wood um, between trees. And then they just put a bit of roofing. Maybe they'd put a pallet underneath, Mm -hmm. stack it up, and put a bit of of roofing material or something like that uh, over it. And so now if you go to my property, (laughs) there's just wood (laughs) stacked between almost every tree. And the other thing that I learned the hard way is when you're doing that, in my experience, don't just stack it on the ground and cover it with mm. with a tarp, oh, yes. because then oh, you no. go back a year later and you're like, "Oh, my wood is moldy." It's a bit more like compost. Maybe this is more going to the garden than into the house. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes. So, uh, so I felt like that is though that is the the like cheap man's version of being able to deal with not having enough woodshed, which. You know, few people I think actually have enough woodshed. So that's true. It's a really privileged position to have a, a lot of roof that you can store <laughs> wood under. I love that with, between the trees, the trees thing, and it's vital that you put something underneath it because otherwise your bottom one or maybe even two rows of wood is going to get pretty punky pretty fast. So having some clearance from the ground, however, wherever you stack your wood, is a great idea. That was really important. The the yeah. the, the, the cheap. The cheap person's person, and I was also laughing. Um, and maybe you could, uh, in the next part, talk a little bit more about this. But uh, like, still to this day, maybe someone can call in later and actually solve this for me. But the amount of time we spend taking the trees, bucking at the trees, stacking the trees between, you know, t- st- stacking the wood between the trees, moving the wood now that is ready for its dry storage, you know, <laughs> up to the, the woodshed, then now it's ready to move down to the house. We move it down to the house and then into the house. Yes. I, I, yes. Like, it feels- the, they say that firewood keeps the one who uses it warm three times, you know, once when you cut it, once when you carry it, and, and then once when you burn it. But it's really more like eight or nine times once you've moved all your piles around, that's for sure. <laughs> and then there's just the, the warmth of screaming at your children to go get the firewood. Oh, I mean, really, that's that, very that, heating. it is. It, yeah. it, can, it, can, it can warm a person up. Yeah. Um, okay, so what I, what I needed when I first got here was a primer. Mm. And, um, and that would have talked about uh, storage, rotation, how much, just, you know, getting down to how much, um, w- defining some of the aspects, what it means to be, to be dry, not dry, um, and uh, timing and planning. So if you were to create that primer, you would start with storage, yeah. I'm assuming. But yeah. what else would you tell us about timing, planning, even rotation. Absolutely. Well, um, you should always ask the person who's leaving your house, if uh, you haven't just built it, how much would they've been using in past years? That, that'll give you a nice benchmark. And, and then you can know about how much storage you're looking for. Um, and if, 
if you don't have a woodshed, you can always make freestanding piles if you're a handy stacker. It's like it accesses our inner child, the one who built block castles. And you can actually just put up freestanding stacks with roofs over them in various spots, which you can later move around and around. Um, so we've got this storage. We've got, we've got our piles all stacked up. But, but when do we have them stacked up is a really important question. Um, so to get to your point on timing. And I have to say that I was recently reading Little House on the Prairie to my seven-year-old son. Amanda's making a big gesture of recognition, like, I've been reading that to my kids not so long ago, maybe. <laughs> In fact, I was, I was almost going to talk about uh, The Long Winter, which is yes. one of the Little House on the Prairie books where they um, almost die and have no wood. Uh, just as sort of like, it's not just us that struggles no. with this. It's no. time immemorial. <laughs> That's right. And I think sometimes we don't ask questions about us because we have it in our in our memory or in our imprints in our minds that we should just know how to do this because people have been doing it for so long. Um, but in in Little House on the Prairie, whichever one of the many books I was reading, uh, I guess in all of them, the various families would do their firewood in late winter. So it'd be after Christmas when the sap is all down in the trees. They were living, of course, in Wisconsin or Minnesota or somewhere in the northern states that had really cold winters. But even on Cortez, trees are less sappy when all the leaves are off. Um, and so it's uh, if you cut them at that time, then you're starting from a drier place already. Um, so they would cut a whole lot of firewood. They would cut their annual firewood needs and then they would haul it and then they'd spend the following months, you know, splitting and stacking and getting it all sorted out. And they had lots of kids so that it would all get done. Um, and and that was really eye-opening to me, just that simple wisdom of knowing that if you are going to choose, you know, if you're someone like yourself who has some property and, and can choose to cut down some trees when you're looking to get firewood, when should you cut down those trees? You know, that's a question. Um, and I would suggest in the late winter, according to the wisdom of Little House on the Prairie and Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, so that's one, one good thing to consider. And then also you're getting it all stacked up in your nice sunny location. It will have the entire warm, long days to dry so that by the time October rolls around, your piles are going to be um, having the chance to get as dry as they possibly could. When you cut wood in August or heaven forbid, in June, you know, at the peak of the season when all the trees loaded with sap and then you, you chop the log down, it lays on the ground for a month or so and then you stack it up in the cold, in the, the darkest part behind your garage and it, it, it doesn't have, even if it dries all winter, you know, it's getting dry but the ambient humidity is very high so it's not getting dry very fast. Um, so it's, it's not quite as optimal. Um, that being said... If you don't have land and you can't choose when to cut down trees, when should you get firewood? Whenever you see it available. Because firewood is so notoriously scarce on Cortez, um, you should just get it when it's available. You know, if, um, if you have um, access to friends or neighbors that you can help them out with trees that they have down on their property, um, then you can go and say, oh, I'll help you in exchange for some of that firewood, you know. If uh, if you see it advertised on the Tideline, one of the firewood cutters has some available, just go ahead and get it. You don't even have to think twice. It's If you have some a spot where you can put it, just get it um, because it will always hold you in good stead. Um, the thing is not thinking about firewood until it gets a bit cool, you know, September's rolling around, October's rolling around, and then you think, oh, I need firewood. Then you're in a real bind. So I would say with the timing, 
late winter or whenever you can get it. And then you had a whole list of other things too. So uh, the other aspect I feel like with timing that um, maybe you want to get into now or maybe we wait until we talk about types of trees, but um, is how long until we use it? Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's very dependent on the tree type. And I think it's as good a time as any to talk about it right now. Um, People really like to burn fir. Uh, Fir is the densest wood we have available to us generally on this island, unless you're growing some black locust. Um, So Douglas fir is the densest wood. So you can tell if you've been burning with wood for a while, because every time you pick up a piece, you're like, whoa, that one is much heavier than those other ones. Unless you're burning only fur, then it's probably the same heaviness and you've been really getting a workout all of these years. Um, But fur is going to take a little bit longer because it's such a dense wood, so it's going to take a little bit longer to dry. Um, Hemlock is a more moist wood. It it holds a great deal of moisture in itself. It's lighter, um, less dense than, than Douglas fir, but it has a lot of water in it. So it will dry out quicker, but it will need more because it's starting from a wetter place. Um, and then if you should burn alder, it's a very thin barked wood. So if you get it split, it dries much faster. It's lighter, um, and it shouldn't take as long. If you cut alders in it before they leaf out in the spring, then they'll be ready to burn in the fall. You know, if you, if you cut alders in February or maybe late January and then stack them up, then when October rolls around, you're going to have beautiful dry alder firewood. Um, I'm not sure if that applies because I haven't dealt with a whole lot of, of fir and hemlock from the cutting to burning phase personally. But I would think that I, I like to, when I get it delivered to my house, I like to leave those for a whole year. So if I get it delivered to me, say in July or something like that, that I wouldn't burn it that fall. I would save it all the way until the next year's fall for those, those harder softwoods. We have a, uh, I wouldn't say a lot. We don't have a huge property, but we have a disproportionate amount of fur. And I find that, uh, and a lot of it has really thick bark really? and I've just yeah. find it takes a very long time. I, I, more or less plan on burning it um, a solid year to year and a half after um, uh, cutting it. But also we are not the fastest to get it all bucked, chopped, et cetera. So we sort of Mm -hmm. stage that whole process. So I'm sure there's people out there who are doing it more efficiently, but, um, but because that's been a lot of what we have, uh, I do find it to be very slow. For sure. And it's, you know, it's worth it. It's worth all the time that you can give it because a really dry piece of fur is going to make you a fire that will last a long time. You know, you can, you can use less pieces to keep heat your house for longer if you're using a dense wood. Um, We often used to actually cut the bark off the fur when we would split it, you know, so we would split it and then you whack it a few times on the edge and then the bark will just fall off. And, uh, and if you stack it that way, then it speeds it up a little bit, but that's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And then do you not use the bark at all to burn? Um, sometimes I would intersperse the bark a bit. Um, you know, it's like if the bark is damp, with whenever you're burning wood that's damp, it doesn't matter what kind it is, you're r- risking having creosote buildup in your chimney. I don't know. How often do you have your chimney cleaned at your place? This is a touchy subject oh, because actually when my mom was there, we had a, a chimney fire. Oh, wow. 
in uh, one of our places. Um, and we, I, I, sh- I, I, I will stay tuned and we'll talk about the proper way to deal with the chimney fire, which is one of my missions to spread. Um, thank you, Dennis Newsham, for teaching me. Um, and so, and that was because we were burning. Uh, fur that was not completely dry. Right. And I think that the bark is a major culprit of contributing to the creosote buildup as well. So the separate bark, I would make sure it was really dry. Often I would use it just kind of as um, like a way to hold piles off the bottom or something like that, or just make a giant pile of it and let it compost somewhere and then distribute it around on paths or something like that. Um, And then to answer that, I, so we, our, our special needs chimney, um, we get, we clean at least once a year, um, and we try to check it, uh, multiple times to see how it's, how it's doing. And then our, uh, primary house chimney seems to, uh, not even really need it once a year. It's just that whatever it's more efficient, we burn more effectively somehow it's a, it's a far better wood stove. Um, and we haven't had to do it. I mean, if we, we get cleaned once a year anyway, but it's been like, like by and large fine. And also mm-hmm. getting your chimney clean is not that easy on Cortez. No, that's true. That's true. And so you can, you can definitely help prevent the buildup of creosote by burning hot fires. You know, it's such a, it's such a balancing act. You know, there's lots of factors, but you don't want to be going through your wood too fast, but if you just let a little log smolder in your fire for a long time, that's creosote building up right there. So you have to balance how how fast you want to burn your wood with how 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 clean your chimney is and how often you want to get it cleaned or try to get it cleaned and the risk that you take if you don't burn a hot fire. I think often people will burn a hot fire, you know, once a day, once a day to make sure it gets really rip roaring hot because then the creosote that has built up a little bit in the chimney will burn out. Um, and then, you know, over the evening, you might have a, a low burning fire. If you're putting in some wood to try to keep your house warm overnight, then necessarily you're going to have a low burning fire. So then the next day you're going to want to have it hot at some point. Um, that's just something to consider. And if your wood's dry, that will be easy to do. If your wood's wet, it's going to be really hard to get a fire that's hot enough to burn the creosote out. So you've got to be really um, mindful of the dryness. Yeah. My uncle is a big believer in uh, a, <clears throat> a moisture meter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I was looking online, and uh, and the question of dry wood is, of course, a very serious question. Um, and people, you know, they'll be like, you just have to burn the dry wood. And, and then those of us who are wondering, well, what is dry wood exactly? And I found a great resource at a great website called, what's it called here? I wrote it down. It's called the burlybeaver.com. Burly Beaver has a great definition about dry wood and how you can tell. Um, and, uh, and also he talks about the difference between seasoned and dry, which is nothing. It's just that we call it seasoned because wood has been stacked for some seasons. It's experienced some seasons and then it got seasoned. Um, but basically wood with a low moisture content is dry and seasoned wood is hopefully dry and you want to burn dry wood. And I think what he was suggesting was wood with less than 20% moisture content, um, which if you have a moisture meter, then you could actually 
measure that. And if you don't have a moisture meter, but you're just sorting through your firewood, then you can judge it by weight, comparing similar size of the same species of firewood and just hefting them up and saying like, oh yeah, this one's a bit lighter, this one's a bit heavier, I'll burn the lighter one. Um, also some species of wood will, uh, check at the end, little cracks will be visible at the end of each piece of firewood. And that can show that the wood has dried out quite a bit. Um, yeah. So he's, he's got those, those there at the burlybeaver.com all nicely defined in the how to decide which wood is your driest wood. That is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you have any tips about size of, of, uh, stove. I've heard a lot of people talking on the uh, about their own experiences with wood stove sizes, and you know, I think the thing that we like seems like oh, you know, we should just base it on the size of our place. But then I have my brother has had a very tiny, tiny little one because he had a little RV, and. Axel actually was the one who was like, you're not going to want that tiny, tiny, you know, wood stove. And I was like, why not? So cute. Uh, It takes up barely any space, you know, but then chopping all that wood so small. Mm -hmm. But then I also wonder about um, if you, you know, so there's that struggle. But if you're getting a large stove that is actually too large for your space, then you're clamping it down all the time and building more creosote. So I'm wondering about your thoughts on um, size of Mm. wood stove. Well, you might have more experience with it than I do because I haven't I haven't had the option to choose a stove of my own. I've always had the stoves that were in the place that I lived. And currently I live in a, a fairly large house with a very large, not so efficient wood stove. Um, but it's fairly well suited, you know, it's and it's well situated. So our house has two stories and the stove is down in the basement and uh, and it's a large wood stove. It takes nice big pieces of wood. You can load it up and it will go for a long time. And in not too long, it will heat up the entire house just through, um, you know, the thermal the thermal currents and the air rising to the upper levels. And it kind of gives a nice in-floor heating effect in the bathroom because it's just below the bathroom. <laughs> so I have to say kudos to the builder of that house. Um, and I have lots of friends with tiny homes and some of them have gotten slightly larger stoves that have an oven because they wanted the capability to cook on their wood stove as well in case of power outages. Um, those stoves make the house really hot, really fast. And if you're trying to cook, you're cooking yourself as well all the time. Um, but that's just the nature of the beast when you live in a little house. Um, and then, of course, there's all the nicer, hot, more uh, efficiently burning stoves that they make now. Um and those will use less firewood and you should be able to clamp them down at certain times and burn a hot fire and then clamp them down without risking creosote as much as you do in an inefficient stove. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that maybe some of our other firewood experts in, in future folk you firewood segments will have more to say on stoves. Do and you, do you have a, an, a high efficiency stove at your place? I, I, I would say no. I mean, we uh, don't have, it's not, having more than one stove uh, that we have access to in our lives, I would say it is a good wood stove. It is probably the high efficiency stove of 15 years ago. Uh, um, Mine is the high efficiency stove of 35 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So mine, maybe 20 years ago. So, so, and I've seen uh, people who have newer high efficiency stoves and that is not mine. And they're, they're, they're beautiful, at least. They look really 
just better. Um, I have, you know, I haven't used them, so I don't have the same kind of experience. But this is where I really hope that some people listening will call in with their incredible experiences. So I'm going to go to, uh, if all works well, we're going to have a little music break with with warmth and fire theme. And uh, and I'm hoping that some of our listeners will call in both with questions because we have more to go um, and also to answer some of the questions that we have about your own experiences with storing, seasoning, or burning wood um, and how you're kind of making it happen in your in your own life. So you can call in to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. This is the Folk You Radio Show. We are talking about firewood if you're just tuning in. And we want to hear your own experiences, what kind of wood stoves you like, uh, even tips on cleaning, etc., um, storage, the whole bit. And uh, you can call in to 250-935-0200. That's 250-935-0200. You can also try sending me an email at the letter U at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. All right. I hope to hear from you over the break. Okay, that's my uh, music lineup not working. So we are going to have a less perfectly designed break for you um, with whatever music we can we can come up with. So uh, please forgive the lack of fire and warmth themed music over the break. <laughs> Everything gonna be all right this morning. Oh, yeah. Woo! Now, when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother said I was gonna be. The greatest man alive But now I'm a man Way past 21 I was a leany woman I have lots of fun I'm a man I spell him No B. No. Oh, child. Why? That mean manish boy. Mean. Yeah. I'm a full grown man. I'm not your bone lovers, man. Man! 
Rolling Stone. I'm a hoochie-coochie man Sitting on the outside Just me and my mate Y'all know I'm Major Boone, honey Come up two hours late Wasn't that a man? Yeah! I spell him A-Shot And that rubber thing I'm grown. No beat. No. Oh, child. Why? That mean manish boy. Man. I'm a full grown man. I'm a natural born lovers man. Man! I'm a rolling stone. Man! I'm a hoochie coochie man. miss when I make love to a girl she can't resist I think I go down to old Cassie Stew I'm gonna bring back the second cousin that little John the Conqueror Setting out that line I can make love to you, girl And five minutes time Ain't that a man? Yeah! I'll spell him A-child
You are listening to CKTZ, Cortez Community Radio, at 89.5 FM, and on the web at cortezradio.ca. A decade of making waves in the Discovery Islands and beyond.
Welcome back, neighbor. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, on the web at cortezradio.ca. This is the Folk You Radio Show, and today we are talking about firewood for dummies and the rest of us, too. We have Corey Dow uh, in the studio with us, and we were just talking over the break, uh, Corey and I, about chimney fires. And I do think that it's good to be discussing chimney fires. She was actually saying that um, one of her neighbors was just worried about chimney fires the other day. And like, how do you even know if you have a chimney fire? Um, if, if, and the answer to that is if you, if, you, if you see sparks or flames coming out of the top of your house, I think that is probably a good indication that you have a chimney fire. What else do they you... They come right out of the top of your chimney? So you've got... If you're thinking you have a chimney fire, you should go out in your yard, stand way back and look at the top of your chimney. And if you see sparks and flames shooting out, then you're pretty sure that's on fire. That, well, I mean, if you see fire coming out the top of your chimney, <laughs> your chimney is on fire. <laughs> yes, okay. Is sense. there a more subtle way to figure it out before then? i sure there is. Um, uh, but I don't know what they are. Um, but I do know that what you do, and this this doesn't, you know, this is not a bad thing to do if you even think you have a chimney fire, is that you take a glass full of water and you put it into, the, you open your door and you put it in the box of your chimney and you immediately seal shut your you door. Throw the water you throw in. the water in. Right. You don't and put the glass in there. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> and then it comes out as a wine glass. <laughs> the water turns to wine. Only here on Cortez Community Radio. Um, no, so you throw the water in uh, without the glass and then you shut the door. And the steam suffocates, it, it, it takes, it removes the oxygen, it suffocates the fire. Um, I imagine that's kind of a quick process, like toss it in, close the door. Toss like it in, that. close the door. When you say it, it does sound much faster. Um, yeah, don't be goofing around, like throwing it in and then watching the steam rise yeah. and the smoke is filling your house. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you, you throw it in and you really want to do it fast because you don't want to add oxygen to the potential fire, right? You're trying to remove the oxygen. Um, so that, and uh, it seems like a pretty low risk way. So if you think you have a fire, then you can do that. And once, um, none of this is is great. I, I wish that I had lined up Axel to call in during this time, but once he did tell me, uh, Axel who cleans chimneys. So once again, if you're listening and you know the answer to this, please call in and let us know that he can tell by looking at the smoke coming out of someone's chimney, how much creosote has built up and how badly it may need to be cleaned uh-huh. uh, so he's probably wandering around the island right now figuring out who's going to try to call him <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah uh, so i wish i could tell you uh those tips and if you're listening and you know them then call in at zero two zero zero and you can tell me and i'll share them with the community um so we were talking a little bit before the break about the different kinds of wood that you might find uh, on on the island and some of the pros and cons. And a general um, uh, lack of supply. I think most of us are are realizing that uh, we that supply is an ongoing issue. 
um, at least in this part of our lives on Cortez. So if people are not getting their wood right now, and most people are not getting most of their wood from the Community Firewood Day, where is their wood coming from? Right. That, that is the question, isn't it? And it really speaks to the amount of expertise that we have amongst us with cutting firewood. Um, you know, some households have chainsaws, some households don't have chainsaws. Some households have chainsaws and people who are proficient with them. Other households have chainsaws and people who haven't tuned it or started it up in years. Um, so, you know, some folks are good at getting their own wood and they have a saw and they can either get wood from their own land or from neighbors' lands. Um, Sometimes, you know, there's the trees that fall across the road. You'll see folks just, oh, a tree's fallen across the road. I happen to have them I saw in the back of my truck, and I can quickly buck that into manageable pieces, chuck it in, and away I go, and then they have some firewood. Um, but we really rely upon those who are proficient with chainsaws in order to come by our firewood. And um, so a lot of us purchase firewood from commercial firewood providers or have it, uh, you know, some kind of an arrangement with a friend who's proficient with the chainsaw. Um, so that's that's where people get it, for sure, is uh, is from those who are willing to provide it. But the number of people who are providing firewood compared to the number of people of purchasing firewood <laughs> is not exactly in balance right now. And so um, we have all seen, I think, the truck coming up from Courtney. There's the three-cord truck that comes with a big dumper, and he drives all the way up from Courtney, and... Uh, and for $1,000, we'll deliver a load of firewood to your yard, three cords full. And uh, he actually has a contract with logging companies on Vancouver Island so that he can uh, deal with the, their waste wood. Uh, he can go and pick up extra pieces of wood from various logging operations that are close to him and run a firewood business that way. Now, our online community forest is not creating great piles of slash. That's that's not the way uh, that, that we go about it here. So... Our uh, firewood contractors don't really have that luxury. Um, and those who can get some supply will definitely negotiate with the community force, but it, it won't it won't meet the demand for sure that they have. Not this year and, and probably not anytime soon, really. Wow. So basically for that's about three hundred and thirty five yeah. uh, dollars a cord. You can get your wood from off island, yeah. uh, which means that someone else's waste wood has been ferried over here. Yeah. Um, it it does feel like that, you know, when I look around, we do have a lot of trees. Uh, <laughs> so that feels pretty intense. Um, but, mm -hmm. all, uh, but I'm sure a lot of people are doing it because it's hard to uh, come up with, as we know, supply. So it, Yeah, and one thing that, that it connects to is that the firewood contractors now don't own their own woodlots. So I think in other parts of the world, in other places, someone will own a woodlot and they will provide firewood from that woodlot. Um, but the operators on Cortez Island don't necessarily own their own woodlots. They will often do tree services for various people. And so they'll come across um, trees that people want hauled away and they can use that for firewood. Uh, fallen trees that they buck up and, you know, rescue people's sheds from and things like that, maybe a source of firewood, trees on the side of the road. Um, there's there's various things. Um, so 
they have to scrounge it where they can and they have a limited supply based on their clients. Um, so I would say that probably if Cortez wanted to have a more secure firewood supply, then we need firewood operators connected to some firewood supply legally, legally connected to, um, to have the right to harvest trees for firewood and, um, woodlots are, I think that they can be licenses and then they can also be private land depending on different ways, but it would be great to look into that more and have it for a future topic of how do people, how do people get a woodlot? Yeah. How do people get a woodlot? I mean, at prices on this island, I can't even begin to imagine Mm. how we would ever get a woodlot in that way for for local people. But maybe we get licenses and um, and is that so right now uh, there's not a way for people to go into like people can't just sort of wander into uh, crown land, which is being managed by the community forest, um, or wander into uh, the wood forest that is owned by um, logging companies and take wood or take trees from from those places. I can definitely legally. speak to the community forest. Um, it's not legal to take trees from the community forest. Um, there is a specific opening for people to take trees that have already been fallen uh, after operations for personal use. Um, and it's always posted and it's a certain window and you can take your saw and buck and fill your truck. And, um, and I think it's a three cord maximum per household for personal use. Um, and then the rest of the time, those, the trees are, uh, you can't go and cut trees in the community forest. It's just such a safety hazard. There's there's no way that the community forest can have people with saws authorized to go and and uh, cut wood just any time. Um, and that's a that's an easy misconception to have. You know, it's called the community forest. It's like, oh, I'm a community member. This is the community forest. Okay, then maybe I have access to it. Um, and so that's something that the community forest can perhaps publicize more widely. Is that uh, firewood cutting is not permitted within the community forest, except at specific openings. And then, um, and my understanding of what you were saying at the beginning of the show is that uh, you guys are also not allowed to run it as the community forest as a firewood. That's right. In uh, the license, when the community forest is not allowed to sell firewood. Wow, it's such a catch twenty two. Yeah, um. but there, but this is again another thing to look into. There are a lot of other lands that are not in the community forest that maybe could be designated as woodlots somehow. You know, I, I mean, I don't know much about that, but it would be a great future topic and something to look into. Now, the another th- rumor that I've heard or another uh, misconception is that our if a tree has fallen down, are we allowed to go take that tree for firewood? In the community forest? Anywhere. Like, I mean, presumably not on our neighbor's land, although. (laughs) Well, I think that that's just called filching or um, I don't know. They have other words for it. Um, But in the community forest, it's uh, it's very much significant. The trees that fall in the forest are nutrient for the forest. They represent a lot of biomass and a lot of nutrients. And so it's not ecologically great for have people go in and be removing matter from the community forest and it's not it's not within the uh the legal parameters of the agreement the liability is not covered you know you you can't go 
and take take fallen trees out either. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I think if a tree's fallen across the road, you might have a little bit of leeway, not in the community forest, um, but on the public road, you know, there there might be some leeway there. That would be something to look into too. We certainly kind of appreciate when people take the firewood that has fallen across the road. Yeah, it's great to be able to just drive on the road without a tree blocking the way, that's for sure. We're hardy, though. We, we, we can deal with a lot. Um, okay, so that's uh, really interesting. Um, and so can we talk a little bit more about the financial and ecological costs of firewood? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, just talking about the loads that are coming in from off island. So three thirty three, three thirty five a cord is the off island price, and I I think it's very comparable for on island. You know, three hundred three twenty five per cord. Um, and what does that represent? It uh, it represents a whole lot of work. You have only to do the firewood yourself for a season to recognize how many hours, how much labor, um, how much risk is is part of the whole uh the whole endeavor to make firewood available and ready to burn um so it represents the firewood cutters procuring the wood somehow they might they may need to purchase the wood uh then they need to buck it up and they need to load it perhaps carry it somewhere they may split it then load it back up again then take it to your place unload it again so this this is hours and hours of really intense physical labor um and the going rate is just over $300 right now per cord. Um, so people should be expecting to spend about $1,000 a winter for firewood if they need to purchase it. If an average household uses maybe three cords, and maybe that's a conservative estimate, you know, as you were saying for your household, you like to have maybe six to eight um, if you're burning multiple stoves. Um so it's just a good reality check. Um, but then again, I would look at your hydro bill and, and see how much it costs if you've got your baseboard heaters running in order to make your house nice and toasty warm. Um, I think that that's very expensive as well. I, um, so what the thing that we finally did after a number of years, um, and because we talked to a neighbor, so we talked to a neighbor uh, who had put in a heat pump mm. and and this neighbor is very good with the bottom line oh yeah and he said listen even with all of the conservation practices they have a really tight home they keep it very uncomfortably cold um and they used wood and then they put in a heat pump and they said no matter how you look at it, he, they were saving so much money with the heat pump um, because it's quite efficient. It's an efficient form of, of energy uh, that is running off electricity. Um, and so this was, I thought this was really interesting. And I really like wood um, from lots of perspectives, but I then put in a heat pump mm-hmm. um, and in both of our houses. Uh, and... I would say that it cut my our firewood use f- to at least a third. Wow. Um, and part of it is because I think I'm in this way, like a lot of people on Cortez who are in the householder stage, where you wake up in the morning, like I would wake up a solid hour or more before my kids so I could come down and start 
the fire in the cold, freezing cold house <laughs> so that it would be a little bit warm for us to have our morning time. And then we would rush off to school and work and everything else. And I had two choices then. I could either build up a nice big fire um, so that the house would stay warm all day long. And when I came home, it wouldn't be totally freezing cold. Um, or I could let the fire go out. And when we'd come home, uh, you know, which wouldn't even be late in the day, um, you know, come home at three ish, uh, three 30 and we, it would be freezing cold and we would have to spend another hour, you know, mm. building up the fire letting everything warm back up. Layering on your sweaters. <laughs> yeah. You know, all <laughs> like kind of huddling together, not doing anything until we warmed back up. Um, and then, you know, the house would be kind of crank and warm then by dinner time and uh you know or somewhere after dinner time and by the time we would go to bed the house would be boiling hot <laughs> and, and and we i'd be opening my window um to to cool down uh in the evening and you know which is of course wonderful to <laughs> Uh, be warm and listen to the sound of the ocean and and then I would always have the choice again like do I want to bank a fire mm. so that the house that we don't really need to keep warm all night uh, because we're sleeping is not freezing cold when I wake up in the morning and and you know with a heat pump all of a sudden you have the beautiful thing of house elves you can program it so that it's not freezing cold when you come down in the morning. And what I found is that for kind of a background basis is that you could kind of keep your house, you know, not freezing cold, like just sort of a little bit warm with not too much energy. And then you could choose whether you wanted to have a little fire in the morning. Um, and you could choose whether or not, you know, when to light that fire, which often then for me would be at the when we came home, the first fire of the day, we'd have a nice fire and we could let it go out. So I, I'm kind of become a fan personally, and I feel like we have saved uh, that we get to use wood fire for what it's really good at, which is when you're going to have a number of hours to really enjoy it, make full use, put some of your dinner on it, et cetera. Um, and I was wondering if you have seen other people and how they have managed using fire still as maybe their primary source, but blending it with other uh, sources mm. um, to to just make it a little bit easier for their household. Yeah, and this really speaks to the nuance of the, the fire-heated home. It, it's such a nuanced thing, and this is the experience that it takes a long time to really become one with. Um, you know, we, we spoke a little bit earlier about people just wanting fir firewood. And you were saying that at your house, you have a lot of fir firewood. And so it makes a lot of sense that your house is pretty smoking hot after you've built a good rip-roaring fire because fir has the very the very most. Um, my partner gave me a, a little table that, that said how many BTUs per cord of uh, dry firewood. So it's a million BTUs per cord of dry firewood. And Douglas fir has 26.5. And then hemlock is near behind it at 24.4, and that's dry. So this is only relevant if your wood is dry. Did we mention dry? And also alder, uh, we've got a figure of 19.5 million BTUs per dry cord. For me, looking at those numbers, this is an ideal mix because I don't want a a really rip-roaring hot fire every time I put a fire in just for those reasons that you explained. You know, if... um, if I'm going out for the day, 
I, I might put, you know, a log of fur in so that it will go longer and kind of damp it down and risk building up a little bit of creosote during the day to come back to a house that, um, you know, we, you just don't want all the objects in your house to go back to ambient outdoor temperature. That's the thing, isn't it? It's like when your couch is cold and your floor is cold and your walls are cold and every single thing you touch is cold, then you're really starting from square one. So we all want to avoid that because I think it's quite inefficient to go right down to cold and then try to bring it back up to comfortable again. So in our house, the, we often will, you know, um, put a fire in in the morning and get things a bit warm and then kind of burn a low fire during the day, um, especially if anyone has to go out. Um, we also have a house that has a lot of solar gain. So if the sunbeam's coming in, I let the fire go out. It's like, great. The fire has warmed the, the lower parts of the house and now the sun is warming the upper floor and we have a really wonderful balance. So we have to really look at, you know, if we're building new structures about how we can actually gain heat from other sources, you know, uh, passive sources possibly. Um, and then in the evening, then we'll put in a fire again and let it go all night long because our, our, our rooms are down in the lower level. It doesn't get too hot down there. Um, and because the upper bedrooms are far, far away from the wood stove, it doesn't get too hot there. So again, you're looking at something about structural design, which most people living in their homes can't do much about at that point. Um, but the position of your fire, your uh, wood stove does have a lot to do with how comfortable you're going to be and how well you're going to be able to manage it. Um, I definitely like to have a mix of wood so that if I want to burn a, a fire just to take the edge off, I'll get an alder fire going. It'll make some nice coals. I'll damp it right down and that will be it. And it will take the edge off and it will keep things nice without making it hot. But if it's really cold, it's wonderful to have, um, you know, a fir fire or even a hemlock fire. A hemlock fire will make your house nice and toasty in no time at all uh, and really last so long as you've dried it really thoroughly. Um, so it's, I'm talking a lot about managing your, your, your wood. Um, and, but if your wood is dry, you also have this major relief of not having the anxiety of like, will it be hard to start the fire? You know, in my very earliest years on Cortez, it was like, don't let it go out don't let it go out because then we're going to have to start it again. Oh, no. And, you know, I was working with maybe wood that wasn't so dry and hadn't been stored well. And and maybe I hadn't brought it in a few hours earlier so that the surface moisture could just um, be driven off and the, the pieces could be a bit pre-warmed that I was starting my next fire with, which is an amazing thing to just have your next fire's wood there and warm makes the whole process very simple. So then, you know, you maybe you start your morning, I just got up fire, then you just let that go out. But while it's been burning, you've got your next fire's wood sitting beside the wood stove getting nice and toasty. So whenever you're ready to start it after you return, you start it lickety split and then it, it you know, it just gets off and going really fast. So tiny little tips like this, it's all about nuance. It's like French cuisine, firewood heating. We we have an ongoing joke right now in my my family because my husband is really proud right now of his one touch fires um yeah he just like he just uses like one one piece of like old wax paper or something like that (laughs) yeah well no he just throws in the match and (laughs) and the whole thing goes for at least an hour Um, And so every day when he's accomplished his one touch fire, he lets me know that he's accomplished it. And he he would really like other people to acknowledge that he that's a that's a great feat because mostly I just have scorned him. So uh, that. Oh, that is a virtue. 
he should share that skill. He should pass it on. It could be part of his legacy. Maybe we could uh, do a whole folk you where I just ask him about all of the tips of this nuance because I think he would he would like a step by step, step by step, I'm two in. hours. I'm so in. <laughs> I'm going to listen to that. Uh, and maybe I'm not more um, honoring because when we first moved here, uh, my I had to ask my uncle, and this sounds really naive now, um, where kindling came from. Yeah, um, where do you get kindling? Which tree is the kindling tree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, where, <laughs> where is the kindling store? And it wasn't quite that bad, but what I guess I, I wondered was, really, is the only way to get kindling to go out there and chop it yourself? And I would just like to say that even though everybody still makes fun of me, and I have come that to learn that even some really hardcore Cortesians who you're just like, yeah, they can, they can run a chainsaw. Those people, some of them that I know buy little kindling like starters, right? Little block starters. Yes. Because (laughs) do you know why? Because unless you have chopping, if yes, unless you have one with their hatchet, (laughs) exactly. Unless you have my uncle who will make kindling for me, um, you have to, go out and chop your kindling. You do, but it's so therapeutic. I have to say a nice sharp hatchet and a little bit of like, if you've got a head of steam on for any reason, a little peak, a little temper, a little hot under the collar, there's nothing like a good round of kindling chop to just ease that. As a a parent of a young young child, I often was like, I I just have to go chop some kindling. And you could just hear me out, whack, 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 whack. And then when you're done, your your temper has abated and you've got a lovely stack and you're all ready to go. I I <laughs> I think that is beautiful and I feel like we could have really endless folk use just about how to chop kindling in all the different ways. Oh yeah. My uncle puts it all by type and size. Oh yeah. We've got a mixed pile going on right now with like a bunch of cedar cut down to small bits interspersed in the wood pile so that you pick up a log and then underneath is a little pile of kindling that just goes along with that log. That's pretty cool. And we didn't even really doing it. talk about cedar on on this. We didn't. Um, cedar is, you know, it's it's a lightweight wood that really gets going fast once once it's dried. It, it burns fast and hot, and it's an excellent kindling, but you wouldn't want to rely on it as any sort of major fuel source because it just burns too fast, um, and it doesn't make as much heat as the others. And one of the things we, we've talked now about, a lot about BTUs, um, uh, which stands for a British thermal unit, and it's just a way of measuring heat. Yeah, Which, when you combust a certain given volume or mass of something, how much heat comes off it, they standardize that. And so one of the things that um, is very hard, though, to capture in BTUs when talking about firewood is, one, the 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 time... Mm. that it takes to dry which we've right. talked already like people like fur because it has 26.5 if it's quite dry btus dry. we talked yeah. about and yeah. um, that's like less than 20 percent um moisture content yeah very right dry. so very yeah. dry which is going to take you a solid year at least or more uh versus hemlock which has almost as much btu per cord but it takes a lot less time to dry well, it, it may take somewhat less time, but it has a high moisture content. Uh-huh. But once it's dry, it's basically as uh, as the thing is, you know, it's 
it was an interesting thing to me. You know, um, hemlock is lighter. So when you cut it up, your pieces are lighter than fir. It's not as dense. So for the same volume of hemlock, you're not going to have to haft as hard as you would for some fir. Um, but these numbers that, that I had quoted to you all were f per cord. So it was per volume, not per mass. Mm -hmm. um, so so it, it, has, it has a lot of heat in it, hemlock as well. Uh, it's um, and it's it's basically there's also the function of choosing what kind of uh, mess you want around your wood stove. I don't know if anyone else has had a lot of fur slivers, but I've had a lot of little fur prickles from the park, and I hate them. <laughs> um, I would burn alder just to avoid the coniferous barks. Honestly, yeah. I I I feel like you and I are. I mean, I'm maybe the only person with access to lots of fur who's like oh i'd really like to have more hemlock and alder <laughs> maybe um, we could do a trade <laughs> yeah, yeah you wouldn't be the first person who but yes maybe we could um and and then alder we've talked about how yes there is less btus per cord but it also dries a lot faster yeah now the other thing that i want to talk about in relationship to this this is a very long build-up i apologize um that is something that Mark talks about every time I bring him on because I make him talk about it. And I want you to talk about now too, which is if we're really in this together and we're going to be trying to create more sustainable island sources of firewood, how much can we grow mm. and how long is it going to take mm -hmm. for yeah. us to get these different types of wood uh -huh. uh, you know a little bit of cedar to start the fire with um the fir the hemlock for the for the longer hotter fires and then the alder uh -huh. um, how should we be thinking about about the resource and what's available to us and what we can grow right and you know historically speaking if you looked at places um in Europe, how they dealt with firewood was never to go about just cutting down trees left and right all the time for every household. They had woodlots where they managed for trees which would grow the firewood and grow the firewood again the next year. You know, coppicing and pollarding was a major thing, which is where you just chop the tree partway down and then the tree grows new stems in the following years. So you have all the roots established from that tree and all the ability to just grow is there. Um, and hardwood species are definitely better at doing that. Um, and, you know, maple is really great at doing that. Whenever you see the maples out in the forest that have broken and they just send up new trunks all the time, they just send up new sprouts from their lower parts. So if you, if you um, coppiced a maple, it would send up lots more wood. Um, so it was never in the old model to just cut down all the trees and burn them for firewood. You know, uh, when people had nothing else to go to, they took it really seriously about where their next year's supply was going to come from. Um, on Cortez, we, we don't have that many hardwood species that are necessarily easy to, to coppice or pollard. Um, but alder is the fastest growing species that is commonly available to most of us. And you can see the alder groves grow up all over the places along wet areas, and they can often use thinning. Um, they grow fast and they die young. You know, um, they'll often succumb to various uh, funguses and things like that around 50 years old. Um, although we have a great huge one in our yard that's massive, and it just keeps on dropping branches over there. So we can also go and collect branches. You know, in a huge portion of the world, branch wood is firewood. And here we, we just are like branches, <laughs> you know, but whenever I have cut trees 
personally, when I've had the opportunity to cut trees, I also harvest all the branches up to the size or down to the size of my thumb, you know, around. And it's like, so all the branches, my thumb and fatter, I just buck them all up into firewood lengths and stack them up and they make amazing kindling once they're dry. And they're really great for shoulder season fires when you just want to burn a little fire, but you don't want it to get all all hot and make the house all sweaty. You can just burn a little branch fire. And the branches are the densest wood in the tree, some of the densest wood in the tree, more so. Um, like what the, the growth of branches, the rings are always tighter there, whereas the, the wood in the trunk is often has sapwood in it, so it's, it's looser and, and uh, not quite as dense. So branches are a huge resource that we, we haven't really looked at much as a community, or people don't talk about. I know some people do, and I learned at Linnea from you know Brent House, and he always uses branches and, and other people there. Um, so that's something else that we can be looking at. And also if we have our own lots looking where strategic thinning, you know, if you're on your own place, where strategic thinning is, I know you're cutting trees to give light to your garden, but also look where maybe you've got a little thing of hemlocks coming up, you know, a little hemlock explosion as happens often because hemlock is so vigorous in germinating and growing in the first few years. And you could, a person could thin and manage hemlock. I think if you had your own land fairly easily because it's so vigorous and it grows much faster than Douglas fir. Um, so you can enjoy your furs now and cultivate other things for the future. Yeah. After talking with Nick, who was our guest last week. Nick uh, Yes, Nick uh-huh. De- Gagnon, which uh-huh. you say really nicely, and I butcher. I'm sorry, Nick. Um, so if you want to listen to that, that was another great folk university, more about the community forest and also some of the potential in there and also some about firewood. Um, so I really started getting quite excited <laughs> about this idea um, that of what would it take on our island there's a lot of private land that is not being managed, um, either because people can't afford it or because they're not here uh, very often, and so they don't realize um, the potential. Mm-hmm. Um, or also, when I look at it, the risk, <laughs> wildfire risk of not managing their forest a little bit more. And so now I'm, I think, oh, we have, we like we have potential, amazing firewood source just from a little silviculture absolutely absolutely so and so i i'm imagining in the next year or two that the many uh incredible um foresters uh silviculturist uh people like nick on the island who would go and for next to nothing help you manage and thin a little bit your forest reduce that wildfire risk help encourage healthier uh trees take Mm. you know help you figure out what are the best healthiest trees which ones need more light how you can close that canopy further up and in doing so create firewood potential for for the island mm-hmm. um so i'm putting that out there because yeah. i think you know people listening might be like yes well and it could be um, an intermediate level between uh tree services which are essential and highly skilled and very expensive um so it could be somewhere between tree services because maybe you're not dealing with trees that are so complex or close to buildings um and, and, you know, just having people, you know, just, it wouldn't be free necessarily for them to come and do the work, but it would be uh, 
I don't know, a middle ground. I think that's really exciting, Amanda. I think it's, uh, I mean, having just actually had a tree service because we had a number of trees that were so big and mm-hmm. so close to our buildings and um, lines that nobody wanted to touch them. Mm-hmm, and sure. you're looking at 2500 to $3,000 a day. Absolutely. So yeah. once you need to have a tree service because you haven't done a little silviculture in advance, um, the, the price tag is huge yeah. uh, versus having someone come in and, and kind of help you manage those, those trees mm-hmm. before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's huge. And, but it's also if you have complicated tr- trees that maybe are big trees, you might have $3,000 worth of firewood if you had all that firewood delivered to you that was coming down from your trees. You know, it's just an interesting thing. Some people will get a tree service and then they'll be like, please haul this tree away. This is in my way. And then they will buy some firewood later. Um, so there's there's different ways to think about our resources. And it's like every penny spent on a qualified tree service is well worth it. And you have a large resource when you have a tree on the ground in your yard that you shouldn't overlook. And I do feel better now that I think of, about, yeah. I mean, I, I it, yeah. believe me, I'm thinking about firewood uh, all the time. Um, um, and uh, this is from Mark Lombard. I have to always say that you're older we're talking about back to BTUs per, you know, and the the energy that something produces versus the energy um, that maybe goes into it, et cetera, that you can get 3.5 times more BTUs, um, so energy, heating energy, uh, from a hectare of alder compared to fir. Um, Absolutely. Okay. I love that quote as well. Okay. I'm so glad that you said that. You know, and Mark and I were talking about this a little bit before I came today. And he said, don't forget to mention the other benefits of alder as a tree. So while alder is just standing around growing, it's creating leaves, which fertilize the forest floor, um, which it sheds every winter. It is. Uh, it has nitrogen fixing bacteria associated with its roots. So it's actually adding nitrogen to the soil when it's, it's, when it's um, sequestering nitrogen. And it's amazing, you know, uh, alder leaves and chips are amazing for blueberries and other kinds of cane fruit because the mycelial associations with alder are very beneficial for the things that we like to grow. So, and it's incredible, the uh, leaf trees, the insect populations that, that come with the buds and in the cones and things really support the songbird, all the insectivorous songbird populations as well. So it's, it's important to recognize having leaf trees versus cone-bearing trees. Um, is a, it's a real diversification of habitat. So you're actually adding some complexity to the habitat by supporting the growth of alders. And uh, in a previous folk university, um, Whitney's also, who, you know, Whitney will teach you how to make soil from any tree, but if you can get it, alder is just a soil making machine. The, the, you know, the dead alders will turn into soil quite quickly, as we've already talked about why they're growing, they'll fix nitrogen. So, um, Anyway, you know, maybe the grass is always greener and the trees are always more alder-like on the other side of the fence. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a few. I I think I could trade you a bit. I think we could trade. Um, So uh, I I feel pretty uh, excited um, and a little bit more prepared about the future of staying staying warm. Um, Are there other things that you would encourage people to be thinking about when when 
you know, when thinking about the art of, of being part of a community that is dependent on firewood? I think the thing that I've been thinking about most recently, especially after um, the CCFC, the Cortez Community Forest Co-op AGM last week, um, a great point was raised about from one of the members about how is the co-op thinking about firewood um, and encouraging people not to be excessively reliant on firewood. You know, I think her point was that the community forest has a major role to play in um, just spreading the word about what firewood means, how much is available, and how we have to be efficient, and how efficiency means um, looking at how our houses work. Are they insulated? A lot of us would have to kind of shrug and be like, I don't know, or probably not, or mine's pretty breezy. Um, so, so we're not at all efficient. We're heating the whole world as well as our house a lot of the time when we're burning our wood and, um, and our personal patterns. It's like, do we burn a rip roar and fire all day until we get uncomfortable and open the door? Or can we just be brave enough to just burn a fire and then let it go out and then start up another one later on if it begins to get a bit chilly? Um, do we put on our sweaters and, and let the temperature be a little lower without having to shiver all day long? There's all these questions. And do we have alternative sources like you and your heat pumps? I think that that's such a brilliant people for people to consider. The investment cost is, I think, paid off very quickly um, when you look at the cost of heating both with wood and, and other electric sources. Um, so I think, I think it's up to us to think about those things and also to think about what it means to heat with wood. It means trees have been cut down. And that is part of our relationship with land. And it has been since humans have ever been around is, uh, and figured out fire is, um, is using trees in order to keep ourselves warm. Uh, but, but trees are, it's a life. It's a life every time you cut down a tree. And sometimes that, that tree, uh, there's trees that are already down that can be used. There are trees that there are branch wood that's already down. You can, you can take wood without taking the life of the tree sometimes. Um, so, you know, when we're limbing, often we have huge limbs coming off dug firs that are the size of small trees. That's excellent firewood. Don't make a giant burn pile out of that. Just get a sawhorse. Oh, there. Okay. Final message, Manda. I had a, a beautiful flash. When I lived at Linnea Farm down at Walnut Village, uh, the predecessor in the house, David Buckner, built some beautiful sawhorses. So they had deep V's in them so you could lay your branch wood across them and then just saw up a whole bunch at once. And just that simple tool of having those sawhorses and having the ability to just um, buck up branch wood and to know that that was uh, a, a relevant way to heat your house, an uh, important way, a respectful way, an efficient way to heat your house was to use branch wood. Um, the sawhorses made it possible. So maybe, uh, maybe we could look for a great bucking uh, sawhorse pattern that people could could perhaps think about building for their own place um, because there's there's a lot of combustibles around us that don't have to involve taking the life of trees and trees represent a lot more than a heat source for humans their habitat they they do all the things that trees do which I don't have time to talk about now but we know them um, so yeah the sawhorse the, the humble sawhorse it sort of gets me to thinking about how um useful it is to 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 model and have visuals of things like that right like having the right tools is 
often, I feel like 90% of, yeah. of the job. And, you know, you started out by talking about at the very beginning of a primer, the first thing you would tell to anyone is to come up with storage. And, and this also gets me back to one of the questions that I had from a friend of mine, a neighbor of all of us uh, uh, on the island, um, who lives on his boat. Oh. And he said when he came to Cortez, um, he, he really worried about... Um, where he realized, like, I can't get enough dry firewood. I cannot get enough dry firewood. Why? Because he lived on his boat and he had no access to storage. And so, you know, I think, you know, if we realize that this is such an issue, one, we can talk to each other about storage. But two, we can also start realizing that in some ways we need some community storage. storage infrastructure. We need a community understanding of sawhorse patterns, of ways that we can stack wood better, of, you know, walking down to your neighbor who's a little more experienced in seeing their nice hatchet, how they keep their chainsaw, how they dry their firewood between their trees, how they, et cetera. It's, um, I, I'm really keyed up about your idea of our primer. Mm. Um, and I was also talking uh, to uh, other friends about this very, uh, this very thing, including Billy Taylor and uh, Nick Gagnon. We were all talking about the same thing. Like we all need a primer so that everybody doesn't have to learn the hard way as we did. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your your experiences and the things that you have learned um, <laughs> the folk you way by doing it often wrong first. <laughs> uh, and thank you, neighbor, for tuning in uh, to this episode of Folk University and for sharing your questions, your experiences, um, and whatnot. And I'm hoping that as you listen, um, and whether it's to the live show or repeats, that you will also send things that you think about that we missed in this episode, because it's really about us sharing what we're learning with each other. And so there was a lot of questions that we we just presented today. Um, some of the ones that I remember right now, um, and Corey might remember others, are what kind of wood stoves people are using that they're finding really working, um, particularly for smaller homes um, and tiny homes and boats. Uh, other ways to store. Um, we have uh, the sawhorse pattern design. Uh, do you remember any of the other questions that we... Yeah, woodlot licenses. Woodlot licenses. Yeah. What what do those look like? What are other communities doing around that? Um, yeah. Oh, oh, and smoke. How can you tell just by looking at the smoke coming out of your chimney whether or not it's yes. time to clean your chimney? All right, so community, I am offering you a chance to please help make us wiser, um, and I will try to get these answers out on another folk you or on the Tideline. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, and another folk you radio session.